This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa giving you news from an African perspective broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are live on um, online on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Kumbaro Munjere driving the show with Jualani Tulo, Tracy Bumgard and Neto Chamane. Coming up on the show this hour, one of the main Sudanese rebel groups involved in peace negotiations with the country's transitional government has withdrawn from the latest round of talks. Vote counting continues in Mozambique after key parliamentary, presidential and provincial elections. In economics, South Africa's electricity parastrital says it needs to recover $6.6 billion in electricity tariffs from consumers to remain sustainable. And in sport, international boxing organization mini uh, minimum weight champion Simpiwa Konko makes final preparations for his fight against reigning world boxing council minimum weight king Chayapon Monsuri of Thailand. But first, the news with Jolani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Kumbelo. Good afternoon. SADC observer missions observing the Mozambican presidential and provincial elections have expressed a satisfaction to the ele- with the elections in Mozambique. The mission says the country conducted the elections in accordance with the norms and standard accepted by SADC. The observer mission addressed the media in a joint media briefing earlier in Maputo. The head of the SADC mission, Opa Munjiguri Kashiri, has commended the Republic of Mozambique but stated that there is still room to improve observed that the 15th October 2019 elections in Mozambique were held in line with the revised SADC principles and guidelines governing democratic elections of 2015. This preliminary statement covers the mission's observations of the pre-elections process and voting day activities. The World Health Organization and the Malawi government have not yet confirmed if the death of a 37-year-old man in the country is Ebola-related. It was earlier suspected that the man had contracted the virus. The patient had fever, facial swelling and some bleeding in the eyes, nose and mouth, forcing health authorities to quarantine him at Karonga District Hospital, which is situated close to Malawi's border with Tanzania. He is expected to have an ordinary burial, George Mhango reports from Blantyre. At the moment, campaigners claim that since Ebola is a political as well as economic disease, Lilongwe cannot quickly say it was Ebola because Malawi has no laboratory capacity to diagnose and confirm Ebola as samples are sent to South Africa for confirmation. This is why millions of Malawians in the northern region are reportedly living in fear due to news of a possible Ebola outbreak in the aftermath of the demise of a suspected patient. The northern region has five districts from where refugees and asylum seekers from the Democratic Republic of Congo DRC, Rwanda, Burundi, among other countries, used to enter Malawi. 
Medical staff working at a prison in Bukavu in eastern DRC say 45 inmates have died due to a lack of care since the beginning of the year. Some sick prisoners were taken to the city's main hospital, but it reported that it did not have enough drugs to treat them. Prison health workers have now gone on strike over the lack of medicine and equipment, as well as payment arrears. Hong Kong's Legis- Legislative Council has been suspended for a second day after pro-democracy lawmakers again heckled the territory's leader, Carrie Lam. A rowdy opposition members created chaos in the chamber as Lam was about to take questions on her annual policy speech. Hong Kong's unrest was ignited in June by an extradition bill which could have seen residents sent to mainland China courts for trial. Lam says the bill has been withdrawn but the suspension of the legislature means it cannot be formally dropped. The BBC's Nick Beek has the story. As Carrie Lam tried to speak, opposition lawmakers lifted up placards and began shouting at her that she should resign. Some held white flowers to show solidarity with protesters who'd been injured during four months of often violent demonstrations. Eventually, 11 members were hauled out of the chamber by security guards. On Wednesday night, Jimmy Sham, the leader of one of Hong Kong's largest pro-democracy groups, was taken to hospital after being attacked, reportedly by a gang of men armed with hammers. There's no sign of the unrest ending, and another large rally is planned for this weekend. And finally, the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker says a fair and balanced Brexit agreement has been reached between Britain and EU negotiators. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has called it a great new deal that takes back control. The two sides have been working on the legal text of the deal, but it will still need to need the approval of both the UK and European parliaments. However, the Northern Irish Party, the DUP, has cast doubt on its signing off on the deal, saying they cannot support the UK has until the end of October to leave the EU. The BBC's Chris Morris has the story. But what we basically have is broad agreement in principle among the governments, including the UK. But as you've just been laying out, that doesn't necessarily mean still the, the, the big problem we've, we've been looking at for more than a year now, that an agreement made here in Brussels between the UK government and the other member states can necessarily get through the UK Parliament. And we've certainly heard from the Democratic Unionist Party, they're saying their statement of early this morning still stands. The DUP does not yet appear to be on board. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Well, thank you, Jolani, for that news bulletin here on Channel Africa from an African perspective. You are listening to Africa Digest. My name is Kumbero Munjerere. Good evening. One of the main Sudanese rebel groups involved in peace negotiations with the country's transitional government has withdrawn from the latest round of talks complaining of continuing attacks by government forces. The Sudan's People's Liberation Movement, North, a rebel group in the states of Blue Nile and South Kordofan, accuses Sudan's Rapid Support Forces, RSF, government's most powerful paramilitary group of occupying new areas and arresting traders. Our East Africa correspondent James Shimanyula reports. 
Well, it is a surprise. It was not expected. But uh, luckily for us on radio, which transmits across Africa, there is good news uh, moments ago. I'm informed by top officials close to uh, the head of the Sudan Sovereign Council, Abdel Fattah al-Burhani. You know, he's the leader of that country. After all those changes, he has ordered the armed forces to cease fire across the country to allow the assumption of the talks. This augurs well for continuation of the talks because the claim made by SPLM North, which is led by Abdel Aziz Al-Hilo, was timely because it was made at the time when the talks were taking place. As you Mm. said rightly, uh, there were attacks by uh, government forces, and ironically, the number two man in uh, Sudan is called Dagalo, Ahmed Dagalo, uh, better known as um, as Hemeti, is the one who ordered the government troops to fight or to attack SPLM North um, fighters, rebels rather. So. It's just good that at least the, the the head of the government has ordered that. And you know, South Kordofan, for our listeners, has uh, more than one million uh, citizens or people, and it's one of the 18 regions of Sudan. Now, in a press conference in, in Juba, uh, the SPLM uh, chief negotiator, Anma Amun, said that his group's uh, preconditions to returning to the negotiation table included the release of all prisoners, the withdrawal of government forces from areas um, which they've taken, and also a halt to all hostilities. How influential is this group, uh, uh, James, to just to outline this for us? Uh, the problem with uh, that is that it may take time, and you know they were given only couple of hours to resume talks. So let us assume that if all goes well and uh, the head of the Sudan government uh, accepts that indeed there is need for the release of uh, prisoners, uh, detainees, and then uh, they be handed um, to the international organizations uh, so that it's truly believed that they have been released, then that will be okay. But, you know, the problem is that the meeting or the talks are, have been proceeding on peacefully. It will force the head of the Sudan government to, order, to make another order. The mm. way he made the cessation of hostilities that released those detainees. Mm. Good, good, good thing from Sudan is that the new head of Sudan, whom we can call maybe president, is very powerful. Once he makes an order, that's the end of it. So let's hope that by tomorrow Friday or early Saturday, talks will resume. Are other rebel groups involved um, within these peace negotiations uh, uh, happy with this process? Yeah, they are about, let me see, 15, no, 14 Including this one, there were 14 rebel groups that were involved, or let's put it, are involved in the ongoing talks in Juba. Juba having been chosen as a neutral ground for negotiation. Uh, so the other 14 groups, in fact, they are more notorious than uh, the group of SPLM North led by Abdelaziz Al-Hilo. They are more notorious and more, you know, tougher. They have accepted and they are continuing with the talk. So this one looks like um, a problem that may be solved as fast as possible, given, as I said at the outset, 
the head of the Sudan um, Sovereign Council uh, is very powerful now than even uh, the man that uh, they overthrew to the extent that you will order the release of all prisoners and then to stay, set the pace to continue in um, Juba, South Sudan, with those crucial talks. That's uh, James Shimanyula, our East Africa correspondent on the line from Nairobi, Kenya, talking to Ziko Namiso. Now, the World Health Organization, WHO, and Malawi have sent a 37-year-old man who was suspected of having Ebola, died of bacterial infection, and will be buried in a normal way. The patient had fever, facial swelling, and some bleeding in the eyes, nose, and mouth, forcing health authorities to, to quarantine him at Karonga District Hospital, which is situated close to Malawi's border with Tanzania. About 500 refugees and asylum seekers, mostly from the DRC, enter Malawi every month through Karonga District, hence such fears. As George Muhango reports from Blantyre, fear has gripped Malawians. At the moment, campaigners claim that since Ebola is a political as well as economic disease, Lilongwe cannot quickly say it was Ebola because Malawi has no laboratory capacity to diagnose and confirm Ebola as samples are sent to South Africa for confirmation. This is why millions of Malawians in the northern region are reportedly living in fear due to news of a possible Ebola outbreak in the aftermath of the demise of a suspected patient. The northern region has five districts from where refugees and asylum seekers from the Democratic Republic of Congo DRC, Rwanda, Burundi, among other countries, used to enter Malawi. Prior to the death of the suspected Ebola patient, Malawi authorities and World Health Organization officials traveled to Karonga and Chitipa in the north, which share boundaries with Tanzania and Zambia to ascertain the situation. This was after Tanzania was reported to have a suspected Ebola disease case. The officials wanted to assess the rate of preparedness in case Malawi reports such an outbreak. Dr. Rosemary Dlamini, World Health Organization Malawi representative, said there was no cause for alarm. As we are here, we are not sleeping. We are in a state of preparedness. We have a guide for Malawi that has already been developed. We, have, we, we, we meet on a regular ba basis as multi-stakeholders together with led uh, convened by government for us as the UN body and other, and other um, agencies so that we are on track of the situation all the time. It has been confirmed that the patient who was admitted at Karonga Treatment Center died on Sunday afternoon after tests by both staff from the World Health Organization and Minister of Health in Malawi where he was quarantined proved otherwise. The patient was treated as a case of generalized bacterial infection and doctors were guided by preliminary lab results, although when other lab results pended, health authorities did not mention specific tests that were conducted. Minister of Health Jab Muhango, who visited border districts, said epidemiologically there was no risk of Ebola since there was no recent travel or risk of contact with a case of Ebola. In Jitiba, I think I was uh, very, very satisfied in terms of uh, their level of preparedness. I think they are putting in place very, very robust you know, structures that would be able to manage any Ebola uh, situation. Um, and uh, uh, kudos to them. Karonga, I think, they still have work to do. Uh, and uh, this being a major uh, border post, 
I, I, I have simply urged the uh, uh, this commissioner here and, and the, the entire team to up their game uh, because if we were probably hit tomorrow, uh, it could be a catastrophe. But all in all, I think we are ready. Uh, we should be able to manage any situation, any Ebola situation. Various doctors under the Society of Doctors in Malawi have, with funding from UNICEF and Britain's Department for International Development, DFED, studied training doctors in 10 districts in how to handle the situation. Those working in border districts are a priority. So the Society of Medical Doctors has been engaged uh, with, uh, with UNICEF, uh, with funding from DFID, uh, that we work with the, with the Ministry of Health, in, uh, in um, uh, conducting some preparedness activities uh, across uh, Malawi, uh, particularly in nine targeted districts. Uh, so these are uh, Karonga, Chitipa, Mzuzu, Nkarabe, Nchinjidoa, Lilongwe, uh, Deza, Mwanza, and, and, and Blanda. Of course, they, they are now coming up to 10. Experts say Ebola is a virus that spreads through direct contact with blood, feces, or bodily fluids of an Ebola patient. Experts further say the disease can take days before its symptoms are noted on human beings, which include extreme fever, vomiting blood, and diarrhea. The ongoing Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo DRC, which shares a border with Malawi's neighbor Tanzania, has killed more than 2,000 people to date. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Now, vote counting continues in Mozambique after key parliamentary, presidential and provincial elections on Tuesday. Voting proceeded relatively smoothly across the country, but security fears kept some people from the polls, while a few incidents of ballot stuffing were reported. Observers in several provinces also said they were restricted from doing their work. Well, to discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Olofunto Akinduro uh, from the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa. Uh, good evening, uh, Olofunto. Welcome. Thank you very much. Now, Thank can you, you just much. tell us uh, in terms of uh, the overall assessment of AESAS of uh, these elections, uh, uh, what has been uh, the overall assessment of the polls? Well, at this point, it's too early to give an overall assessment of the polls. The process is still on. If you're familiar with Mozambique at all, the final results may not be released um, certified and released until the next two to three months. Um, however, up until where we are, um, our, our mission has noted that election day was fine in terms of the technical conduct, but the period before the election was challenging. Um, and we felt that the integrity of the process was challenged for those reasons. Now, there were reports earlier that uh, some observers were restricted, uh, that they couldn't do their job properly. Were you able to do your work as observers or were there any restrictions? Well, for us as the ISA International Observer Mission, we did not have a lot of reports of people being restricted. We did receive our accreditation. However, we had a few instances where observers were told that the aggregation process was not open to um, observation. But after a few visits, um, 
those officials let the observers in. But if you were making reference to the citizen observers in Mozambique, yes, that was a big challenge because the citizen observers um, had challenges getting accreditation for almost 50% uh, of the observers they intended to deploy. And this has affected uh, the work that they intended to do on election day. Now, what is the position of AISA with regards to reports of a ballot stuffing in some uh, polling stations, Olufunto? Uh, uh, well, I mean, we haven't um, directly observed that as a trend, but yes, we are aware of the reports. Our observers in a few uh, stations noticed um, were at the count where they had more, more ballots in the box than expected. But this was not um, a trend. However, if you're familiar with the voter registration challenges um, way ahead of the election, people had raised concerns that some of those inflated numbers might give the possibility of ballot stuffing. But we did not observe this directly. We did not see it as a trend. There are also concerns that uh, there could be uh, post-election violence in light of uh, these allegations of uh, ballot stuffing in some stations. Um, what is your sense where you are? Um, what can you tell us about that? Do you think uh, um, we could see violence post-elections? Well, I would not uh, go into any form of speculation, uh, but... As, as it is right now, it's been very calm from election day up until this, process, this point. It's two days after, and um, our observers are safe. We have not received any incident reports. And just finally, what is the way forward then? Uh, are you going to release a final report into these polls, or um, have you concluded with regards to what you have been able to assess thus far? As I said at the beginning, the process in Mozambique takes time. It might be up until January next year before the final results are issued, and we would only um, issue a final report after the official results have been declared. And that might take you up to December or January. All right, Olufuto Akinduro from the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. All right. That's uh, Olufunto Akinduro from the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa talking to us uh, on the line from Maputo, Mozambique. Change Your Game is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially youth, on the African continent. Last year, Google named me as one of the brightest young minds in the world. The program seeks to portray various opportunities and options that are available for entrepreneurs. I came up with the way for the world not to pass. It focuses and highlights real issues concerning entrepreneurship. There are so many people whose potential is still untapped. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. Channel Africa, the African perspective. You are listening to Africa Digest here on Channel Africa from an African perspective. My name is Kumbero Munjerere. Cameroon refugees in Nigeria have appealed to the United Nations to intervene in their country's crisis for a durable resolution to the political problems. The call was made as they were being relocated from a camp at Ayenke, 
where they complained of incessant attacks to another location where their safety will be better assured at a ranch in Kwande local government area. Collins Atonghengbe reports, as Collins Atonghengbe reports, the refugees, the refugees uh, they would like to return home once the crisis which forced them into exile is resolved. When they came into Benue State of Nigeria two years ago, the Nigerian authorities, in collaboration with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, made arrangements to have them accommodated at a section of the country where they will be able to meet subsistence need while efforts continue to resolve the crisis in their Cameroonian homestead. But between then and now, the refugees have complained that they were being attacked by unknown persons suspected to include persons from their host community with devastating effects. Differences between them and the host community could be as mundane as trying to get some forest products. Narrating recent incidents and their effect, one of the camp leaders say the attack, especially on the women, has left them with emotional wounds. The other time, that was on the 21st of December 2018, they came and fought us and they destroyed some tarpaulin houses with cutlasses. And at times, they do come there and bring problems in, in case of any small thing, such like facing of firewood. Just of recent, they caught some, a few of our women at the grassland site, whereby they were there for searching of mushroom and they raped them. The incessant attack prompted the Benue State Government and the United Nations High Commission for Refugees to seek out a much more safe ground to put up a new camp with subsistence facilities, including portable water, education and health facilities, which were not readily available at Anyake, and where they can be monitored and better protected. Emmanuel Shaw, an official of the Benue State Emergency Management Authority, says the new place is located within a cattle ranch where they will have more space. They were accommodated at Anyake community, but the state government, together with UNHCR and other humanitarian partners who are working together, have felt the need to move them to this place, Ikogenkatu Ranch. And so we believe that they will have more space in this place. The leader of the UNHCRO field office at Ogoja in Cross River State, Mulungad Mozart, says, the new camp was made possible through the combined efforts of concerned agencies. Together with partners, FJDP and other partners like Save the Children, Medatrix, FHI 360, and all of that, all of us in coordination, in collaboration, provide the support and ensure that refugees, while they are here, get the adequate services that they have. Home front comfort cannot be compared to what is obtainable in a camp occasioned by involuntary conditions like war. That is what makes the difference when one is nostalgic. That is what is evident in the voice of Ekal Zephaniah, the Secretary of Cameroonian Refugees in Benue State, Nigeria, as he sends a plea to United Nations and other relevant organs to assist in quelling the political crisis which sent them into exile from Western Cameroon. But back at home, challenges still persist, still continues because many are still in the bushes. So we are appealing that the UN should intervene into this crisis and put an end to this. And all those perpetrators, all those committing these atrocities should be held responsible for their action. With their relocation to a much better facility where they can have adequate water supply, which is one of the items lacking in most refugee camps, healthcare facilities and schools for their wards, and increasing safety margin, 
it is expected that the refugees whose daily cry is when shall i see my home would be able to lead a better life even if it's not comparable to being at their homestead which they abandoned in Cameroon to seek refugees from the war which is taking its toll on the english-speaking cameroonians from lagos nigeria i am collins nosato ingui for channel africa news When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Building Africa with love. Bujambo Africa. If there are holes in this continental ship, we are its children. Let us go and stop the holes. Let us gladly do it with our hearts. And if we cannot, then let us die. We will make a plug of our brains and put them into the ship, but condemn it never. Catch us on Channel Africa from 10 to 11 a.m. every Friday and Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. It is uh, almost uh, 17.30 here on uh, Channel Africa from an African perspective. You are listening to Africa Digest with me, Kumbaro Munjerere. It's now time for the news headlines with Jualani. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Kumbelo. Making headlines, the Sadak Observer Mission in Mozambique has expressed its satisfaction that this week's presidential and provincial elections in the country were peaceful. The World Health Organization and the Malawi government have not yet confirmed if the death of a 37-year-old man in the country is Ebola-related. And finally, medical staff working at a prison in Bukavu in eastern DRC say 45 inmates have died due to a lack of care since the beginning of the year. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Now, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, says while it acknowledges the lower price offered to the South African government for the newer anti-tuberculosis drug, Delamanid, the International Medical Humanitarian Agency has called for it to be reduced even further and expanded to all countries in need. Well, to shed some light on this, we are joined on the line by Candice Sihuma, the Access Campaign Advocacy Officer for MSF. Uh, good evening, Candice. Welcome to Africa Digest. Hi, thank you for having me. All right. Uh, how much does uh, a six-month uh, treatment cost cost in, in South Africa at the moment? And why do you think uh, the price is too high? Yeah, so at the moment, um, the price of um, the laminate is about 1,100 US dollars. It initially was um, uh, around, actually, I mean, just convert that in South African rent. So that was initially 23,000 rand before it was reduced to now, um, which is about um, 19,000 19, um, 19, rand. 
So the price of the lime is a four, six-month treatment course, and the reason we are still calling for the price reduction is because it's still expensive for the ordinary you know, South African as well as for the government to procure because of how expensive um, it is. So it, it causes um, so much of a burden to our South African government, um, considering all the you know, health constraints, health you know, um, issues that we face in the country, um, having to put, allocate a lot of budget in terms of TB treatment. So, you know, comes as a high, like as, as, as they still have to shoulder the burden of the high cost of TB treatment. Now, what measures uh, do you think should be explored, uh, Candice, uh, to bring the price of Della Manid down further? So currently, um, the Otuka, which is the in, um, uh, producer of um, Delaminid, is the only uh, sort of they the only they hold the patent on 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 on, on Delaminid. If we if if they could sort of uh, like leave the reins to other companies and actually um, create a generic uh, market and, and, and entry for generics to come into the market that would sort of reduce the price of the laminate to much lower at the moment because they've created a monopoly for themselves and that they, you know, have um, companies like MyLand who have a tech transfer and actually manufacturing um, the laminate. They're the only, you know, company that has some kind of agreement with Azuka. If we have, you know, um, take away the patents and allow for more generous entry into the market, that would certainly reduce the price of the laminate because then if you have the competition within the market, that ultimately would uh, make the price much lower than it currently is. And how has uh, Delamanide changed uh, the way the drug-resistant TB is treated since it was successfully registered in the country? Yeah, so um, Delamanide uh, is one of the most effective um, TB, uh, drug TB um, treatment drugs. Um, it's one of the new drugs, you know, in the past 50 years. We've only had um, three new drugs, so it's one of the new. And it's, you know, um, has less side effects. It's more tolerable. It's, less, it's not toxic as, as, as compared to previous, um, previous uh, TB treatments, the injectable treatment, which was dropped by our government. So it, it is more... Um, it has more, you know, efficacy, but also can be taken by kids um, around, you know, from three years going up with, you know, with other drugs. They can't be really taken by um, by um, pediatrics. So it is more effective and it also has um, uh, less side effects and less toxic. So in terms of um, toler- um, tolerance for patients, it's more tolerable um, because of how, um, you know, um, palatable it is. All right, Candice Sihuma, the Access Campaign Advocacy Officer for MSF. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We highly appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, that's Candice Sihuma, the the Access Campaign Advocacy Officer for Doctors Without Borders or MSF. Bringing the time to 25 minutes to 6. In each and every one of us, there, there is a purpose and grace. We were all meant to shine. It is up to an individual to, to realize, realize that, that purpose. Don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something. Join me, Amanda Machaga, on Life by Design, where I will be talking to people who share their journey on how they discovered their purpose with the hope to inspire you to, to live, live your life, life by, by design. design. Tune in to Life by Design for your dose, dose of, of Monday, Monday motivation, motivation every Monday at 8 a.m. Central African time and at 2 a.m. the following day. Life, life by, by Design, be the architect of your life. life. Only on Channel Africa, the African, the African perspective. perspective.
across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLeg to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Now, South Africa's ongoing water crisis and the viability of harvesting icebergs as a fresh water supply came under the spotlight at a media roundtable discussion hosted by the Gib Engineering and Architecture in Johannesburg. The roundtable focused on unpacking the current water crisis and proposals to harvest icebergs south of the African coastline, amongst others. More from Ron Tulichek, Senior Associate at Gib Engineering and Architecture. Basically, it's a, a roundtable where we get a, a series of experts and the media is invited to come and listen and then to have a question and answer in a session afterwards. But this particular one um, highlighted the situation in Kauteng, where, or in South Africa in general, where we're a water-scarce country um, in that our annual rainfall is of the order of uh, round numbers 500 millimeters a month whereas the world average is nearly double that. So we have a scarcity of water in this country, and what uh, this panel today discussed is what are the ways forward? Well, where are we right now? What is the situation right now? What are the forecasts for water demand, and how are we going to meet these in the future? Now, with the current water situation in South Africa, what is that looking like, and how would you describe it? The current water situation is, uh, okay, excluding extreme events like the drought that we had in the Western Cape uh, about two years ago, uh, but the water situation in the country is stable at the moment. But if you look at a scenario of do nothing now, um, we will run out of water or demand will exceed supply in 2030. So we have to look at ways of augmenting our current water supply. Now, at the moment, there are some very large schemes that are on the go, uh, notably the Lesotho Highland Space 2, which is under design at the moment, and that will augment the Kauteng water uh, in about 2026. In the background as well, um, they're busy with the environmental studies at the moment, but there's the Umkamazi scheme in the Midlands Mm -hmm. in Natal, and that's about the same size as the Lesotho Island Scheme. It's a huge dam and about 34 kilometers of tunneling. And what's happening there is the Mgeni catchment, which the Mgeni Water Board um, controls. 
The Mgani catchment is fully utilized. You cannot get any more water out of that catchment. So the Nkomazi scheme is actually looking at the adjacent catchment area, building this dam, and then transferring the water from the Mkomazi catchment into the Mgani catchment, and that's why the towns are so long. And so, so that'll augment the um, Mgani water supply to the um, Durban and Mshlanga area. Now, what what can harvesting iceberg assist with um, in this crisis? The iceberg story is something that triggered this particular conference. Um, now, engineering-wise, nothing's impossible. Okay? You can work around mm, it. But mm. the, the outcome of this particular little um, session was that at the present moment, the iceberg story is not really feasible. There are much better ways to spend that kind of money, ways that one could improve our water system, for instance, where a lot of the water that's um, wastewater that is treated actually goes back into rivers. Now, that wastewater could be used for irrigation on farms or sports fields or stuff like that because at the moment, you know, we are using good water to water our sports fields and golf courses, which doesn't make sense, you know. Um, the other thing is, in especially um, some of our poorer areas, the maintenance and the um, there's a lot of water lost in those areas. And if one can upgrade, there are schemes at the moment. If one can upgrade those areas to to make their water supply more stable and and better quality fittings, then one can save a lot of money by just doing that. And mm. the outcome of this was that money is rather better spent on that scenario mm-hmm. than on icebergs at the moment. Mm. Now, how then should the country go about um, really implementing, you know, a comprehensive management strategy here? Because, um, as you say, you know, there's a lot that can be done, um, but certain things would obviously cost more than, than the other. So how does the country then begin um, to work on this management strategy? Basically, the, there is a master plan um, that government uh, have got. Uh, which takes us to and a bit beyond uh, 2030, and it does look at all of these different strategies. The main problem is funding. Um, The government is putting X amount of money towards um, infrastructure and upgrading um, the water supply, but a lot of that money is going to what you might term flagship uh, projects like the Sutu Highlands, you know, high-profile projects, whereas the the upgrading of uh, current utilities and uh, the use of grey water, as we call it, which is processed water that you can use for irrigation, it looks like a lot of that money will have to come from the private sector. the globe every second there's always a breaking story what we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people the government concurs with the views of the black economic empowerment council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on black economic empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that 
discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. It's about 16 minutes to 6. You are listening to um, Africa Digest here on Channel Africa from an African perspective. It's now time for economic news with Tracy Boomgard. Thank you, Kumbelo. South Africa's finance minister, Tito Mboweni, says the final economic strategy published by National Treasury in August will be presented with the midterm budget at the end of the month. The plan has received more than 750 public comments. However, Mboweni says not all comments will be incorporated into the final version. He says the document solicited inputs from economists, the ANC, NEC, Lehotla and Cabinet. Ideas which are internally consistent with what we're trying to do, we should incorporate. But those which are internally inconsistent, we should just uh, appreciate the contribution. Somebody who says, in order to get the economy going, economic strategy must say we are abandoning inflation targeting. That is internally inconsistent with what we're trying to do. That's inconsistent with our mandate. Uh, We can't do that. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has called on investments to live up to their promise to create jobs and improve the country's economy. He was addressing entrepreneurs during the official opening of a privately owned smartphone factory plant in Durban. The gadgets will be sold both in the domestic as well as in the regional market. Ramaphosa is in the province as part of keeping track of developments in the investment drive, which was launched earlier this year. The new cell phone factory has created over 200 jobs, with women making up 67% of that workforce. Ramaphosa encourages potential and future investors not to give up. A number of projects are currently in implementation phase and will soon be launched. But the pride with this one is an investor who came to our country and said, I am going to invest and create jobs and I'm going to create a product which will be sold throughout the continent and they have made true to what they promised because we want to encourage others, investors in our country, that they should live up to what they promise. Ghana's inflation rate for September 2019 has dropped to 7.6% compared to 7.8% in August 2019. This is due to the rise in the general price level of goods and services. Food and non-alcohol beverages recorded a year-on-year inflation rate of 8.5%, which was 0.3 percentage points higher than August. The inflation rate for locally produced items was 8.9%, indicating a 1% increase from the rate recorded in August, while imported items recorded a rate of 7.3%, representing a slower increase of 0.3%, 
from the rate recorded the previous month. Tanzania's Williamson Diamond production has registered a 17% increase this year. According to a Petra Diamond report, the mine output rose to 399,615 carats in the year ending June from 341,102 carats in the same period last year. The company says this is despite operations being impacted by cash constraints. Turkish Turkish presidential sources say President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has rejected a letter sent by U.S. President Donald Trump in which he threatens to destroy the Turkish economy. The letter was sent after U.S. troops withdrew from the Syrian border. The U.S. is facing intense criticism over the move, which some say gave Turkey the green light to launch a cross-border offensive against Kurdish-led forces. The BBC's Mark Lowen reports. In the letter, President Trump has threatened to destroy the Turkish economy, uh, but the sanctions that have already been introduced are relatively light. If Donald Trump moves further, uh, actually does really hit the Turkish economy hard, that could potentially put pressure on, on President Erdogan. And we know that within Congress, there is pressure for the sanctions to increase and to intensify. Trump is, is, is counting on his personal relationship with Erdogan, uh, but it's been stormy. And, and as we know with Donald Trump, a decision taken one day can be reversed the next. The U.S. dollars trading at 360.44 Nigerian Naira, 10.79 Botswana Pula, at 102.53 Kenyan Shilling, and at 13.17 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.16 Brazilian Hale, 64.21 Russian Ruble, 71.24 Indian Rupee, 7.10 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.94 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,488 and platinum at $884 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $58.95 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. All right, thank you, Tracy. Now, with the latest in the world of sport, here is Neto Chimane. Good afternoon, Neto. Thank you, Kumbelo, from the sports desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with Olympics news. The marathon and race walks at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics could be moved from the Japanese capital to Sapporo, where temperatures will be significantly lower. This according to International Olympic Committee. The IOC is proposing the move because temperatures in Tokyo during the July 24th to August the 9th games could reach into the high 30s Celsius. When Tokyo last hosted the Olympics in 1964, 
2024. The marathon won by the great Ethiopian Abebe Bikila was run at 1 p.m., but that was in the month of October, not October, not August, as it will be the case next year. At the recent World Championships in Doha, both the men's and women's marathons started at midnight, but the heat and humidity still presented massive problems. On to boxing news. South African boxing trainer Colin Nathan, who trains a current international boxing organization IBO minimum champion Simpiwe Kongo, loves the underdog attack as he makes final preparations for his charges fight against reigning world boxing council WBC minimum weight king Chayafun Munsri of Thailand. Munsri, who is popularly known as One Hen Menayothin in boxing circles, will slug it out in Bangkok, Thailand on Thursday next week i think worldwide we're looking like underdogs i just you know it's here's the thing here's the thing is the expectation is we're gonna lose that's the, the expectation around the world but i've been in positions so many times like this in my career before where i know that i've got the fighter that can produce the upset i've got the right fighter i love being in this position i love being in a position where no one says you have a chance or you can't do this don't tell me we can't when we have the ability to. So it's, it's, I love being in this position. I love the fact that no one thinks we can win. It's great. Meanwhile, Johannesburg-based Nathan has described Menayothin as a strong opponent, and that is easy to figure out. The 33-year-old Thai boxer has won all his 53 fights, and 18 of those wins came via the short distance. On the other hand, Kogno has registered 19 wins, 7 knockouts, and 5 losses. He's very strong, aggressive, uh, throws lots of combinations, former world Muay Thai champion as well, very rough and tough on the inside. The referee in this fight is going to be very important. Um, equally so the judges. You know, it's tight, it's hard to win in that, that territory in those kind of conditions. But mentally we, we get up for this, you know. Uh, not expecting any favours, King. I'm not expecting any favours. But uh, I'm very excited about this opportunity. That's great for South African boxing. First time in over eight years, the South African fights for a legitimate world boxing council world title. So, very exciting times. And yeah, I think uh, people need to stop believing in Conton. I think uh, I think he's got a hell of an opportunity and chance to win this. In rugby news, Ireland named Gary Ringrose in the midfield to replace the suspended Bandi Aki for their World Cup quarterfinal against New Zealand at Tokyo Stadium on Saturday. Aki was suspended for three weeks after he received a red card for a high tackle in Ireland's final Pool A game against Samoa. Ireland coach Joe Schmidt. Obviously, with Bundy missing out, that kind of clarified the midfield a little bit. But Chris Farrell has been has been very good for us, and his his second half performance, I think, against Scotland, uh, he really came on and, and and made a an influential impact. Yeah, on the on the wings, Andrew Conway's been very good as well as Jordan Lama. So so the uh, the outside backs is is a bit of a conundrum. In- 
The professional women's tournament at the origins of golf Selborne wrapped up in style on Wednesday, with Noble Shetlamene claiming the victory over Lauren Taylor by cutting a 73 in the final round. Having led by five shots overnight, after firing an impressive 70 in difficult conditions during the opening round, Lamene was the favorite going into the final round. Despite consecutive bogeys on the fifth and sixth holes of the second round, the player from S. Dini never let Lauren Taylor or Jane Turner, who finished third, get too close. Her final score of 143 totaled one under par for the two rounds and ensured Lamene was a worthy winner, despite Taylor's attempt to mount a, str- a, strong, char- a strong charge to victory midway through, through the final round. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Ito Chemani. This is Africa Digest. Recapping uh, the top stories uh, this hour. One of the main Sudanese rebel groups involved in peace negotiations with the country's transitional government has withdrawn from the latest round of talks. Vote counting continues in Mozambique after key parliamentary presidential and provincial elections. And that wraps up Africa Digest this hour. From myself, Kumbra Munjarere, I will be back with you in the next hour. We're playing out with Tandolwe 2 by Bosi featuring Questa. They said we'll never make it We were going too far But we went the distance, you and I And here we are, here we are I hope we still have patience To try and reach for the stars We're still trying to make it to the sky Carry on, carry on So ekta, so my paintbrush, my heartfelt song, the paint dries, my atlet, or see I talk and you speak, then I walk and you scream. I found you, I found love, you find me, you find us. They said we'll never make it. We were going too far, but we went the distance, you and I, and here we are, here we are. I hope we still have patience To try and reach for the stars 
Carry on, carry on. 